But you're but, just against executing someone in general. So I feel I, like I just, you could not I, be swayed. <laughs> I wouldn't last a day in the seven. <laughs> I like how um, Beef and I are kind of, uh, we're, we're changeable on the whole execution thing. You're like taking a hard line. <laughs> I just told you, you should execute people. <laughs> Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. I don't even think we've reminded you of this in a while, but if you haven't watched the whole series, you are in the wrong place. We spoil from beginning to end all the time. Please go finish it, watch one of the best series finales ever written, and then come back and listen with us. So today we're going to be discussing 203, uh, 100 years. I am one of your hosts, Beep. I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. And we do have a new guest panelist this week. Welcome, Crystal. Hi, how are you? Hey, we're glad you're here. Glad so tell here. us a little bit about you, where you're recording from, all your social media. Um, okay, so I'm recording from the great state of Pennsylvania. And um, I am a writer, a longtime nerd. And um, I, you can find me at wordyblurred.com and you can find links to all my social media there, which is all wordy blurred. That's kind of what I'm known by. And you write a lot of, um, like you write a lot, you do a lot of reviews of, of sci-fi television shows, right, Crystal? I do. I do. I really love sci-fi and fantasy, sci-fi especially. I like a lot of like, um, like sci-fi, S-Y-F-Y shows. <laughs> so like, um. Uh, Killjoys and Dark Matter, even though Dark Matter is gone, it's dearly departed, was one of my faves. Um, And then, of course, uh, 12 Monkeys is right in that echelon. Yeah, and why do you, so are you ready to enter our gauntlet? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Again, again, you're entering our gauntlet again. Take two. (laughs) (laughs) So this is our, some people may have seen us joking around about this on Twitter. This is our very meta Groundhog Day episode. Um, Crystal is, she loves 12 Monkeys so much that even though she recorded for two and a half hours with us about episode 203 and it didn't record, she's back to do it all over again. So tell us why you love 12 Monkeys so much you're willing to record this podcast twice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it's a really well-crafted show with great characters, great acting, um, a lot of pathos and heart, a lot of humor, um, subtle humor that I really enjoy. It's not like, ha, 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 we're making jokes. It's some, some of it is just situational. Um, and it's really, it is a really fantastic show, and I'm really glad that uh, I was almost uh, conscripted into watching it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> You mean that lovingly, right? Uh, yeah, very lovingly. <laughs> like, well, you know what you should do? Watch 12 Monkeys, what you should do. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite character? Cole. Yeah, I just love his whole arc. I think, you know, I uh, recording this podcast, um, it kind of reminded me to kind of like do a rewatch. Because when I watched it the first time, I watched it within a month, basically. I finished the whole series in a month um, and maybe some change. And I just want to take my time now. So I watched the first episode and the second episode. And it's just 
where he starts and really like earning that kind of chosen one status in a way is really, um, that's my bread and butter. I love seeing the making of a hero. Yeah, I'm so excited. We Now we've gotten like a string now of some coal stands. So I have some company. This is exciting. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite moment? Um, when Cole realizes that he's he's the problem, he's the demon. When he says the words, I'm the demon, I just, it's crazy. <laughs> it's just every emotion. And yeah. I just, yeah, it was really well played. And it was one of those things, um, when you look back on it, you know, you can kind of tell they were building towards that a little bit. But it just hit, like, knocked me on my behind. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, it was a kick in the teeth. It was, r- yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe particularly so, like for, uh, you know, he's your favorite character. He's my favorite character. And when you get to the end of a, a series and you realize your favorite character is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. <laughs> um, do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to go back on my my first answer that I did the first uh, time we recorded this and say that this is one of those cases where it's equal it's equally under it's equally believable that either of those outcomes happened that she didn't and that she did and generally that kind of ambiguity really messes with me I don't like that um I like firm answers in my finales but wow, they really created something where it was like, wow, she really could have not, that really could have been um, the Red Forest they were in. And so they were fighting this whole time against Paradise, basically. Mm -hmm. And considering Uh, that, um, you know, Cole does turn out to be like the problem, um, quote unquote, I would say, um, yeah, she didn't do it. She didn't stop it. They're in the Red Forest. Interesting. Okay. So would you stop the countdown? Hmm. Possibly. Well, I think I think yes, because I they, I did so much to get to that point that I probably would because I would feel like everything I did was in vain if I did. Mm-hmm. So you feel like she was confident enough of what the Red Forest was to make that decision? Because I think we saw some very conflicting views over what it might be. Um, I think that the way that um, they were... The way that they presented it um, with the tall, pallid man, particularly when she first realizes that, wow, we, if I um, press his countdown, I will have never known this man that I love so much. Um, And all this fighting and all of this will be for naught because, you know, I would have not had this experience, la, la, la. Um, I think that, I don't know, man, she, she had just been through so much and because they cut away right before um they would have shown her stopping the countdown or not i just it just feels so plausible that she didn't that she didn't want to take the chance yeah i mean i think that that sums up the the quandary (laughs) pretty Mm -hmm. well right there yeah do you have a favorite era for costumes alone like just aesthetics um when they went to that future party and um they were it was kind of like it was almost Victorian, but well, no, 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 they weren't in the future. They were in the past. Um, when they went to that Victorian party with um trying to chase down their son, um, I don't remember what episode that is, but um, they look really, really good. In it's it. masks, masks. There we go. Yep, that's they look great. Although I can see why it's confusing because in Titan they also kind of had medieval wear, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So you have um. 
like when they had the guest star who's in um what's her face who's in Winona Earp like their costumes all look like something that could have been from like a long time ago as well but yeah yeah so mm-hmm. the Victoria the, like the masked ball in masks yeah. yeah yeah now we asked you this before so I know the answer but I still loved your answer so I'm gonna ask you again has this show made you cry it has not made me cry I don't think but I definitely get the tinglys um when um things happen um for instance if something really emotional happens the when he said I'm the I'm the demon the realization of that the weight of that the emotional punch of that gave me like the goosebumps and the like the the ASMR feeling and I get that a lot with like when I watch really good um stories like when I experience whether I'm watching them I also play video games so sometimes I'm playing video games and it'll hit a moment where it's just like super super um kind of saturated with emotion I get like the tingly and I've definitely had it with this show that time was one um uh, the time when I mean towards the end when they see each other um when when uh when Cassie remembers like when she rem- when she looks at her back seat and Cole's not there and she realizes um also when she realizes they were in love and she just and he like kind of switched the um timeline on them and really didn't tell her about it and she kind of remembers it like all these little moments that are like really saturated with emotion i get the tingles <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that for like the tinglys. I love it. Um, (laughs) Okay. All right. So we are discussing 100 years. It's written by Michael Sussman, directed by David Grossman, who directed so many just like really excellent episodes of the show. Um, Michael Sussman, and I know just because you love Star Trek, Crystal, um, he's got like really deep sci-fi roots. I just went down a rabbit hole on this guy's bio because like when you list the episodes, his name is in blue and you could click on it. Um, And his bio is that he was, it sounds like he almost was kind of like us, but um, fans, he like wrote letters to affiliates to save the original Star Trek. He was writing Star Trek fic, like at age eight. Um, (laughs) And then he went like, right, like this guy's my hero. He went from like writing (laughs) fic to actually writing for Voyager and Enterprise and wrote for a bunch of other sci-fi shows. So I just thought it was like such a fun, fun story, right? So many of our friends are writing fic and it's great to think some of them could be creating something we're watching someday. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I just wanted to give kind of a shout out, we've mentioned it in passing, but, um, this, you know, this, this episode in particular, it's obviously the first time we're traveling into the past, um, and really kind of breaking open, like the whole, like canvas of the show. I, we've never mentioned, we've, we talked a lot about the costumes and the costumes in this episode are just like stunning. Um, it's my particular favorite like we were just talking about favorite costume era it's my favorite costume era like that dress Cassie's wearing um but even the everyday clothes like just that 1940s kind of Bogart and Bacall kind of look I just love it um but also just how from now on how quickly they're going to be changing not only the costumes but the sets like the last episode we saw the Emerson Hotel and kind of it's 2016 graffiti and there's like bulletproof glass where you check in and it's not, it's definitely seen better days. And then what the next episode we're seeing it like in its heyday. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, 
transform that whole set from one episode to another. And I was trying to think of like other TV shows that have to do that, um, where you're transforming the set and the costumes from day to day like that. Um, but also the cinematography um, in just in particular, this episode was one of the first ones where I was like, just really noticed how beautiful it looked just like the images on screen. So the really blue toned hues of 2044 versus like the sepia of 1944. Um, It's just a really beautiful episode of TV to look at. It looks like a film. Um, And the show actually won, um, I guess from this point on season one, I think was mostly David Green. And then season two is between David Green and Boris Mosofsky. Is that how you guys would say it? There's a J in there. So I don't know if the J, you're supposed to say yeah, the J I would, or not. I would skip the J. I okay, would skip so I, the J too. <laughs> cool. All right. So I skipped the J, but we're acknowledging it's there in case I got it wrong. Um, but he actually won a award from the American Society of Cinematographers for Thief. Um, he beat out David Green for Mother. So two episodes from season three were nominated for awards. Um, just like, I think there's only like five nominees. So just want to shout out that it's just the shit, like the production values, they just keep getting better and better. But I just think this episode in particular is just beautiful to look at. Um, so that takes us to the opening scene is we're in 1944 and Pistol Pack and Mama is playing by Pink Crosby (laughs) (laughs) and the Andrews sisters. Um, And we watch Mantis and her cohort take out the poor apple bombs. Um, I love the sort of black humor of this scene. Like it is so brutal what Mantis is capable of. And yet the lyrics are basically narrating in this like, really upbeat tune what's going on with like shoot me over the head and and wanted me dead and all of that is what's happening with mantis killing mrs applebaum mm-hmm. um, and i know crystal you know this song from s- something else yeah um it uh instantly made me start dancing because it's a prominent song in the uh video game fallout so fallout's whole um kind of uh take is that their lore is based in it's futuristic but the kind of aesthetics of sci-fi in like the 50s and 60s that's what moved forward so it's like robots and like a lot of nuclear power everything like nuclear cola like all kinds of stuff and this like old school um old standards music is what's playing on the radio and you can carry a radio around as you're like traversing the you know aftermath of nuclear apocalypse right and so i love the moment so the moment when mantis right after killing someone stops and kind of lets herself enjoy the the song on yeah on the record player which is I feel bad that I'm laughing because it's fucking horrible. She just murdered someone. <laughs> but she's like, ooh, I like this tune. Um, and so she's fascinated with the record player. Um, and the title of the episode, 100 Years, I think at minimum, it's referring to the events of this episode take place exactly 100 years apart in 1944 and 2044. And I love that they use this piece of technology, a record player, playing a record in 1944, and then they cut to 100 years later in 2044, where Dr. Eklund is just like freaking rocking out (laughs) to Zeus's take a ride um, while he's working on the machine. And so you're cutting from like 
100 years to 100, like 100 years later, and it's using sort of the pivot point, the same piece of technology that isn't something that we necessarily use in our everyday unless you're like super into vinyl, right? So it's just kind of like an interesting piece of tech that they chose to kind of be the link between those two. Um, yeah. The song that's playing, Take a Ride, um, if you look up the lyrics, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I think it's kind of funny considering um, the lyrics are, I can see the colors of my spaceship in her eyes, enticing her to come with me and take a ride, a pretty face from another place in time. And I love how ironic this song is when you apply it to both Dr. Eklund and Cole, who are seriously striking out in this episode with both of the women that they're interested in. Um, <laughs> Cassie very much does not want to take a ride with Cole in that machine. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like the whole song and then it's like the next five minutes are Cassie saying like 10 different ways that she can make it clear that the last thing she wants to do on Earth is go in the time machine with Cole. Um, I love Dr. Eklund's wink. At, at Jones and how like rattled she is. Um, but I love also that like Adler is actually telling us something extremely important that time is collapsing in on itself, but we can't, n- neither Jones nor the audience can hear him because Dr. Eklund is like blasting the music like a teenager in his room. It's so great. Um, Beep, did you, did you have something about Eklund and the machine and the way the song uh, the first time that he actually walks across the screen was when they sang the word spaceship. And I just found that funny due to his history on Battlestar. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Um, the other thing that I thought linked sort of at the top of the episode, these two time periods that are 100 years apart, is the um, when Mantis and the other messenger get out of the car to arrive at the military function. Um, first of all, it shot for shot, the way the characters are positioned is almost exactly the same as the way Cassie and Cole will get out of the car and then walk into the function just with where actress and actor are positioned, how they get out of the car, how they walk past the huge uh, war bond poster. And that image, I thought was a really interesting one of the two children with the gas masks. Um, first off, it's real. That was a real poster from the 1940s. Um, about the threat of of possible chemical weapons. Um, But I thought it was interesting because that mask not only recalls, you know, now it makes me think of Ethan in season three wearing that mask, right, when they released the gas in the tent um, with the potential converts. But I just thought it was sort of an interesting, very subtle commentary on you've got a risk that is man-made during World War II that, if people used chemical weapons, people, including children, would need gas masks to survive. And then you've got people like Cassie in 2044 that can't walk around outside without masks because of, again, a plague that was caused by human actions. And it's just sort of a sad link that it's 100 years apart, but mankind basically just still our potential to suck. <laughs> basically like um, nothing ever changes yeah um i just thought and also i mean there's a line that um joan says in the episode when she's talking to ramsey about children shouldn't have to bear the burdens of adults man when you look at that poster they they end up doing that though right Mm -hmm. like it's just whenever it gets bad enough 
and whenever it gets bad enough, young people are caught up, sometimes the first to get caught up in, in some foolishness, which is horrible. Yeah. Um, and then, Crystal, you said it also reminded you of another time travel show. Yeah, Doctor Who. Um, one of um, the more iconic episodes is called um, The Empty Child. And it's it's about, well, it's a really, really good episode. Um, and it's another really emotional one. And one of the kind of the prevailing image is this young child with a gas mask on. Um, but the gas mask is like attached to his face. And he's going around trying to find his mummy. Like he's saying, are you my mummy? And he, to everybody. So it's kind of like this really creepy, eerie thing going on. And then you find more about the uh, story and it gets a little bit more emotional and kind of elevates beyond creepy to something really um, poignant. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting. Cause I, there's a bunch, there's, there's a lot of shout outs in this episode to other time travel work. So I'm, that's interesting. I wonder if that was on purpose. Um, so that takes us to when, when Adler is trying to maybe fish a little bit for what's going on between Dr. Eklund and Jones. And Eklund. <laughs> I mean, that's, it was such a like, what's, what's Adler getting at here? Is he like, no, it was kind of interesting. He was trying to just try to like get us get a sense of like what's going on with the team, or I don't know. I thought that was interesting. But Jones shuts it down, um, and she says that line, just have to get used to the new normal, and immediately cuts to Deacon and Cole beating the crap out of one another while <laughs> Oh, I love it because it's like some things are the new normal, like the added complication with Cassie, but then there's some things that never change, which is the three of those guys like trying to beat each other up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Crystal, there was you... no, the funny thing I think in this case is like there was no purpose for it. Like they were just beating the <laughs> shit out of each other. <laughs> I know. Well, it's just I how they deal with stuff. They're like, all right, well, we'll punch it out now and figure it out later. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Crystal, you mentioned sort of the the humor um, in this show. And, there, you know, there's definitely like a lot of pop culture shout outs and there's definitely mm -hmm. a lot of absurd humor um, yeah. and the musical numbers. But I think this episode is a really great example of just these like one liners and it's, mm -hmm. both, it's both the writing and the way they're delivered. Like, for Absolutely. example, in this scene, when Cassie says, this is a relationship I will never understand. And Cole says, you should hear what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so subtle, but it like makes me laugh. I, I, it's like now at the fourth time we watch the episode, it still makes me laugh. <laughs> Um, but you know, other than sort of like the, I love that they're like leaning into like, these guys all have a lot. There's a lot of history here. There's a lot of added causes for sort of the antagonism between them. You've got Deacon probably jealous of Cole, Cole jealous of Deacon. Deacon is understandably <laughs> pissed at Ramsey that he was like assisting in, uh, you know, <laughs> obtaining the plague. Now Cole makes a really great point. Like, I feel like we've given a lot of, um, we've talked a lot on past podcasts about Ramsey's decision to aid the army of the 12 monkeys. And while he did that, knowing what the, effect would be i think cole makes a good point here that 
you know, the whole thing in season two is going to be the messengers trying to destroy the very fabric of like humanity's existence. And the guy who helped get them in is Deacon. <laughs> so even though yep. Deacon didn't know what they were doing, I think Cole raises a good point that's like, look, and I think this is important later in the episode. If you're going to be pissed at Ramsey, you should be pissed at Deacon too. Because those mm-hmm. two guys, those two guys had a lot to do with the mess that everyone is in. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, the whole, the way the scene all plays out is also interesting because Ramsey, when Cassie's saying, this is a relationship I will never understand, it's interesting because the thing that she and Ramsey both is at the center of their conflict, but is also what they have in common is that they care about Cole. Mm-hmm. And and yet by the end of the season, they're going to be aligned with each other and against Cole. And then when you like step back and think about all of these four people fighting right now and where they're all going to be the at, at the end of this series at Titan fighting together when Cassie's the one saying we need to bring Ramsey back because we need our friends and our family. It's just kind of crazy to watch. Like, this is where they started. <laughs> like beating each other up and screaming at each other. <laughs> um, did you guys have anything else about that scene? Um, I think that, I think what you were saying about, um, about, uh, Ramsey's, Ramsey's motivation, it's funny because I remember at first run, um, you know, introducing the son and the, you know, the ex-girlfriend and stuff. I was kind of like, that was one of the the plot points that I wasn't super, super into. And it felt like it was, it was positioning him in a way. Um, I felt like it was a little bit too... Because I had the same feeling that a lot of the other the, the characters had was that, you know, all of a sudden you meet this little kid and now you want to kill all these seven billion. What was interesting was that was at the um, at the crux of Cole's mission. They were trying to beat into Cole like these people are already dead. You know what I'm saying? But then, you know, um, when Ramsey goes back and is like, yeah, I'm going to make this plague happen because these people are already dead and I have a son in the future. They are mad at him. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. You know, I mean, when they're arguing like what's the past and what's the future, Ramsey is going back and it's something that's already happened. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point, Crystal. Well, Jones uh, even says, isn't it when they're arguing in this episode, she says that um, at least her selfishness is on the side of like 7 billion. Like they're admitting at this point they're being selfish and she just says that hers is better because of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I like that she came, she finally came. If if she should come, we'll get to that scene, but if she should come clean with anyone over her motivation, it should be with Ramsey if she's about to execute him for doing the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, Let's just call a spade a spade, Jones. Um, but yeah. Um, so that that takes us to also just, I mean, it it also like breaks my shipper heart, but also the, the comedy in the situation room scene where Cassie is so unbelievably clearly annoyed and not wanting to go on this mission and to come up with every conceivable reason and excuse to not go on this mission, all while <laughs> Cole is there. And like, he's like, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> and Ramsey's just 
watching it like a ping pong ball and, and Jones is just sitting there with her cigarette waiting to like render her judgment. It's so, there's so much going on and a lot of it is just like in people's looks, but it's so great. Um, so I think we can break down. I think there's a lot of layers as uh, that go to, I mean, Cassie not wanting to go. The first is just uh, basically like she thinks it's not focused on the mission. Um why are we going back to 1944 when the plague is in 2016, which is hilarious now when we're like, listen, honey, you're going to go back to medieval times. So 1944 <laughs> is nothing. Um, but you I mean for Cassie, she's like, I just, she doesn't see the connection at all. And she's very much focused on 2016, which you can, you know, you can understand why maybe this seems like, like going down a rabbit hole. Um, she also very clearly is uncomfortable with, you know, she says, I'm not a time traveler. Um, and we see when she arrives there that this is not, you know, it reminds you, even though we're used to seeing Cole do this all the time, that this is not something that's easy on the body, right? And it's disorienting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminds you of all that, even though like we as an audience have gotten used to Cole, you know, jumping back and forth. Um, but obviously there's a, a personal element to it, right? Like she, she does, she says she doesn't trust him. The last two big stakes situations with both Ramsey at the end of season one or Jennifer at the beginning of this season, she and Cole have come down on different sides of it. So she's about to go into a dangerous place like New York City in World War II, time traveling with someone that she doesn't trust she's going to be on the same side with. And obviously there's like the, the super personal, like that photograph looks like they are getting along and all smiles and she's clearly not ready to be in that place or willing to be in that place with him. Um, Did you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, I think that just as much as she's not ready to be there, he's like stoked. He's like, you know, like he's, I mean, he's more so, I think he's more focused on the mission that she gives him credit for, obviously. Um, But I think he's probably like, okay, well, I know she's mad now, but clearly things clear up a bit for us to be taking this picture. So, right. Like that, I think it's so interesting. Like that photograph for her, she's filled with trepidation. And for Cole, it's like a sign of hope. Like we're going to get past this current impasse because look at that photograph. Like we're dressed up at a party and we look happy. Um, yeah. Um, I love, you know, Cole, understandably, and and he deserves it, gets a lot of shit throughout this show that he never comes up with a plan. Um, and Cassie has that phenomenal Johnny Nightroom like call out because the night room <laughs> the night room was a disaster. But if we could just give a shout out to James Cole, he comes up with a really good plan in this episode. Like he spends two months, he se- he like sells the jewelry, he possibly sleeps around with people with connections. He, <laughs> <laughs> he makes donations um, and he gets them on the list to a like top, you like, uh, you know, the FBI is there like providing security. He gets them in and he comes up with a plan. He even goes shopping for Cassie. Like the dude really plans something out. And I feel like he didn't get a lot of credit. <laughs> so, it, you know, the, the plan at the end of season four is not, this was maybe James Cole's one other plan. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't get credit from Cassie because he was having too much fun doing it, though. (laughs) He is not having that right now. (laughs) Um, I love when Jones shows us that jewelry, like 
first of all, like, you know, we'll never know, but I'd love to know the stories of that giant jewelry box that she has of like all of that jewelry. But, um, you know, we're going to see that necklace where she's like, do what you want with it, sell it. And, you know, what Cole's going to do is he's going to, it's going to show up on the neck of like a very pretty woman that shows up and, and is clearly sweet on Cole. Um, it also, I was reminded watching the next episode, it is an anachronism that is a clue to Agent Gale that there is something bigger going on here because that necklace wasn't, that design of that necklace wasn't out in 1944. And so that, mm. I, I had forgotten that that necklace not only is a source of some interesting, like, chafing between Cassie and Cole at the party, but is also a clue to Agent Gale that Cole is possibly a time traveler. Um mm. Uh, I love the just again another scene where there is humor but a lot of tension and different characters like commenting on what's changed is when they're saying goodbye um, right before Cassie and Cole are going to splinter away. In some ways, it's kind of it struck me it's kind of sad. You know, Cassie and Cole started out their big leap of faith was a rendezvous at a hotel room, right? And the pilot. Oh um, yeah. So it's kind of, you know, Cassie's still going to meet him there, but it's kind of like a sad full circle. They're in a very different place than even they were then. Um, but also when Cole turns to Jones and says, wow, he as in Deacon really did a number on her. And Jones says, are you sure it's not the other way around? You know, Jones, as taciturn as she can sometimes be, she is very insightful um, as to like what's going on with people. Um, an observant. And I think that that is a pretty fair assessment, especially like, even if it's just with the simple lines of Deacon looking really concerned and saying, be careful, and Cassie's response is behave. Uh, it's definitely a hint as sort of like, what's the power dynamic there? I think that Cole has underestimated Cassie in a lot of ways and feels like she can be molded and didn't even realize that this person who you know, is the top dog of everyone could potentially be molded by her. Mm. Right. I mean, which, you know, I mean, the deacon he knows is the deacon is the head of the West seven, right? Like this kind of larger than life impervious to any like moral um, argument, right? Like it would be surprising. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, the one thing that like, you know, we'll get to in the end, but when Cole asks Jones to let Ramsey see Sam and she agrees to it, it's really shitty because <laughs> she technically yeah. does exactly what Cole asks, but she's doing it under the opposite of circumstances than, than Cole could imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, so that takes us to uh, the arrival in 1944. And it's not just a big deal for Cassie, but like it's just a big deal for the show. This is the first time we're going in the past and they pick sort of a grand, uh, grand way to do that, like getting dropped in the middle of Manhattan in 1944 <laughs> in the middle of an air raid. I think that's the price, <laughs> right? Like I think that's a view of the Chrysler building. Everything's going dark. Um but I think, Crystal, you had said it also really sets the stakes. Yeah, um, it, like that particular scene, it's right before the act break. And there's really no, it's not, it's not so, it doesn't deliver a lot of story, but it's really there to set the scene and the stakes. Um, 
and it's atmospheric and it's just like seeing that and it's also kind of like a flex like you're showing this like really interesting um imagery right before we go to to the break and then when we come back she's right she's it's like daytime everything's fine she's headed to the you know she's headed to the hotel so that one scene is just really to set a tone and I kind of appreciated it for, you know, it could have easily wound up on the cutting room floor, but it didn't. And I appreciate that it stayed. Yeah. I mean, Cassie also waking up, lying down on the ground, totally disoriented. Like, again, it reminds us that this is, you know, she hasn't been doing this as long as Cole has, right? Like she's only basically splintered twice before, right? It was at the end of season one when she was shot. And then that one mission that was in the season one premiere. And this is like basically her second only mission. And she's still like physically thrown by it. Um, and I just think it's like an interesting reminder that this, like what they're being asked to do is not an easy thing. Um, that takes she did splinter again, just to go back and get Cole, though she was very begrudging about it. Yeah. <laughs> Begrudging is like a stupid note. <laughs> well, if you think about it, it's really funny because if she if there if she is jealous at all of Jennifer, being asked to splinter to pass a note from Jennifer to Cole was kind of like if you were cast, you'd be like, fuck you, why do I have to do that? Right? <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, so that, that takes us, that takes us to, I, I feel like I'm going to say this a lot in this episode, but one of my favorite scenes of Cassie walking into the Emerson hotel. And in some ways from her perspective, it's a little bit different. Like Cole is clearly like child of the apocalypse compared to the post-apocalyptic world. 1944, even in the middle of an air raid in Manhattan is freaking awesome, right? There's whiskey sours. <laughs> Like, it's fantastic, right? People bring you, like, a telephone on, like, a silver tray and call you Mr. Cole. And, like, as long as you've got the <laughs> money for the jewels, like, he, he clearly is liking it there. But for Cassie, Cassie would be, like, somebody like us that would be walking through a time period that you'd only known from, like, history books and film, right? Like, you would be even a more, I feel like you would be, kind of dazed by it in, in a different way than Cola's. Because yeah, I mean, I, just, to, just to add the extra layer, I'm also black, so that would be a really shitty time. <laughs> I feel like it would not go well at all. <laughs> I think that um, on my, my introduction to 1944, I would have a lot of other concerns, plus on top of the mission of saving the world. <laughs> so it would be really, um, it would be like walking on eggshells a little bit. Right, you know, it's no crystal. It's so interesting you said that because um, Alicia, who was on the pod last time, when she watched that episode, and Cole said, "What's not to like?" She's like, "Yeah, because you're a white dude." Exactly. <laughs> 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 the only person looking around in the 1940s who's like, "What's not to like?" is a white dude. <laughs> Again, showing that humanity, nothing changes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um. So, all right. So I love like, okay. So I think it was beep. You pointed out that you, there's a million things that are like causing this chasm between Cassie and Cole. But in addition to it, for Cole, it's been two months and two months of the last time he had sort of that, like, 
you know, these like kind of short exchanges with Cassie and he's had time to think about things. He's had time to look forward to this photograph. He's gone shopping for her, right? <laughs> for, for Cassie, it's been like a minute. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, she's still pissed, just like she was a minute ago when she saw it. <laughs> it's just like the writers must have had so much fun because it's like not only had they been like separated by the eight months and one was in 2016 and one was in 24 and you've had two confrontations where they were on two different sides of a moral divide about what to do now you have another mini time jump where cole has been like looking forward to this moment for two months and cassie's like dude but i'm still pissed because I was pissed at you a minute ago, and it was a minute ago. Um, and yet, there's something about like the he's so like think back to James Cole in season one at a party where he was so awkward, like he could only come up with you know he was in a borrowed tux saying she bought me a cheeseburger, and you can understand why that Cassie thought that Cole couldn't handle himself in 1944. And part Mm -hmm. there's part of her in this scene that's discovering what's changed about it. And it's all subtle. It's all like in performance before she kind of steals herself to be back on mission. She's almost like looking at him in wonder because this is a Cole that lived in 2016 for eight months without her. And even though he and Ramsey were on the run, he still had to navigate the modern I say modern world, but like our world. Um, Mm -hmm. And now he has gotten along just fine and come up with a plan for two months in the 40s. This is a different Cole. Um, And he's charming as hell, right? Like he looks pretty debonair in the hat and saying, let's go get a drink and all of this. Like, so it's kind of a really interesting, I thought interesting because you kind of see her go on like a roller coaster without a lot of dialogue up until the point where she rips that photograph. Mm-hmm. Which she did to make a point. Because, yes, paradox, great. But then she's like, okay, and you can burn it. Okay, well, you could have just burned it. But she's like, you see this, you, me, this line, this divide, it's real. Yeah, it's brutal, man. He looks he looks like a kid that you just, like, took away their toy. He's just like, why did you do that? <laughs> Um, the other great part that you is like now that phone call that was Ramsey <laughs> had just yeah. been hit by a car calling from the hospital trying to tell them that like everything that's going to go wrong. Um, and of course, the nurse presses down the receiver. And so the call doesn't go through. But now it's just sort of like, ah, oh, you just want the phone to get to them faster um, kind of moment. Um but, you know, that that shifts to the arrival at the party. I mean, again, I just love how it's, I just love the 1940s glamour. Like, it just looks like, you know, uh, like Casablanca is one of my favorite movies. So, like, it just, it looks like something out of, you know, this show has been really gritty and was really gritty throughout most of season one. You know, they had a couple parties that they went to. I just love the 1940s and it like oh. reminded me like it reminded me, you know, it's wartime. It's a, it's like, you know, it, it just makes me think of like Casablanca or like, you know, wartime kind of, I'm sure it wasn't actually glamorous, but it, it sure looks glamorous on, on <laughs> film and television. But um, I love the kind of awkward, like 
dynamic between Cassie and Cole where Cassie is clearly pissed and Cole is doing that thing that people in real life do. And I think <laughs> you were saying this, right? Last time, the difference between men and women and dealing with a conflict. Oh, totally. He, I mean, they just deal differently. And right now, I don't think he understands completely why she's mad. And I think to some degree, she might not fully understand why she's mad, especially mm-hmm. because you were just talking about her dealing right now with a different cult. It's like, wait, I'm seeing this different person. Maybe I actually like this person. No, 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 no. I'm not prepared to be over this. Like, she is so closed off. She doesn't even want to start working through it. And he's like, I don't understand. We threw it all out on the table. Like, we should be fine. And it's just, I mean, you saw him in the, you know, with Deacon. Like, they punch it out. And that's not (laughs) how he and Cassie are going to resolve it. So there's just this disconnect there between just strictly the differences between men and women and how they, you know, how they disagree. It's like, it's like when you, it's like any girlfriend that like you go for drinks and you're like, well, does he know why you're mad? No, but I want him to figure out why I'm mad. I don't want to tell him why I'm mad, right? And so Cole's just doing that thing that men do where they're like, but maybe, but maybe if I just keep acting like we're not in a fight, then we won't be in a fight. Because in his mind, he did a thing that was good. And, and that's true. Yes. Like, okay, you saved people, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, like, and we've talked about before, it was totally fine for those people to die until they were your people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's like an issue of, okay, so what I think doesn't matter. And you're just going to go off all Johnny R- night room and do whatever the hell you want all the time. Like, even though you're spouting, like we have to kill them. And then you're like, no, we don't have to kill them. And you can just change your mind while I'm stuck here, like at your whim. Mm-hmm. and then you have so, so it's all these like i don't know if passive passive aggressive might not be the right because it's pretty aggressive but you know you have <laughs> i mean you have all these you have all these moments where you know he's he's about to introduce cassie to the woman who's wearing jones's necklace and cassie's going to beat him to the punch and not let him introduce her as his wife and this time is quite clear that she is his sister um and his face is like wait what um and then (laughs) it's just again he just looks like a kicked puppy a lot during this episode um and then you have the photograph scene and you have the guy telling cassie to smile and when it's done we get that we get like the explanation for why they are smiling in the photograph and then cassie says you know we got that out of the way and it crystallizes. And you know she is so relieved, right? I mean, she is so relieved that that is over. Because it means that at least for now, she can put all that stuff out of her mind. Because she hasn't had to face what might bring her to be smiling like that. Right. But if you're Cole, you have maybe hung your hope on that photograph. Yeah. So, so to now not only know that it was fake, but have the fact that the person that you were hoping that it would represent reconciliation with actually say out loud, oh, basically, like, I was dreading that. Thank God I don't have to be in a photograph with you. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I can understand why he's like, I'm going to go get a drink. <laughs> like, he's over it. Oh, my God. He's so over it. 
was over <laughs> it. And I, I get it. Like I get, I get like, I'll be honest when I watched this episode the first time, I think I am more emotionally was with Cole than I was with Cassie. I don't really know why that is just like whichever character looks hurt is usually the one that I like feel like empathy for. Right. Like, and it's not to say that I don't understand her point, like her point of view, but it like, you know, we're supposed to be like a little bit sad that these two people that were close are now like such at odds. Right. Like, I think that's like a natural reaction. What I like about this just overall that goes even beyond, I love sort of the commentary, especially in sort of the media age that we live in now with like Facebook and Instagram, blah, 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 with photographs and how two people or a person could be smiling in a photograph and you've no idea what the real story is behind it. And this photograph we have been seeing since the last episode. And now we know that it, it isn't at all what it seemed like in the, on the surface. And I, I kind of love that. Um, something I like to remind myself as I'm scrolling through, right? Like whether it's Facebook and everybody's life looks perfect, right? Um, <laughs> so that takes us to meeting who I think is like one of the best recurring characters on television ever, which is Agent Gale. Um, and he is named for the writer of the screenplay for Back to the Future, Bob Gale. And what I, what kind of hits me now, especially when you watch the next episode, is as badly as this first meeting goes down, what is crazy is they are all, like, Cassie and Cole are there because Agent Gale left that photograph with the date and the place written on the back. Uh-huh. So it's like this loop, the same way it is in, in many other episodes in which he appears in Fatherland when they're the reason why that clue is in the CIA report or in After when uh, Climb the Steps Ring the Bell is painted on the wall and it was Jennifer who did it, right? It's like <laughs> many loops within the loop that they're there because they did something to put themselves there and find the clue later on. And this is sort of one of the first episodes where they've done that. Um, and all of them, even though they don't touch directly at Agent Gale, Agent Gale is often involved in these like loop, like loops within a loop um, episodes. But I guess I forgot what a dick he is at first. <laughs> this first scene. He's like such a classic Hoover G-man, like giving his colleague a hard time for having a drink, calling Cole Shirley, like just riding Cole's ass. And we, and we find out later in the next episode, it's because it, it's, which actually ends up being a good thing. Like Agent Gale has this instinct that told him that Cole didn't belong there. And that's why he is like needling him, even though he says that he's, kidding around um but you know he's perceptive he's he sees that cole is someone you know he he maybe draws a conclusion the more obvious one that he's fought in world war ii but he sees something in cole he's like you're a man that's like seen been through things seen things um and there's a great west seventh joke about seventh division do you guys have any thoughts about uh cassie swooping in to uh save the day here with the pecker sob story I just love that her first like inclination was to literally emasculate him. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> In front of like who someone who's clearly like very important. But also I will say this. So as much as Cole planned and as much as we've seen Cole like make shifts in the middle of action, Cassie is much better on her toes, especially when it comes to 
relating to people and knowing what they need to hear. Yeah, she's a much better bullshitter. And like, what's what's going to get a man in the 1940s to step back is to like talk about an injury to the groin is going to make him super <laughs> uncomfortable, right? And she also is really good because, I mean, this is an example, uh, you know, in the next scene when Cole's like, if we work together, Cole needed Cassie in this situation. He doesn't know, you know, he's like Chadley Apocalypse. He doesn't know the history, the way Cassie, who went to school and learned history, is going to be able to you know, I'm, I'm impressed with her knowledge of like World War. I don't think I'd be able to rattle off quite as much about the Philippines and the Bataan death march like that, but like, she's really good in knowing historical details and only somebody like her who's been educated would be able to do that. Cole can't do that. So it's also just, you know, I, I, obviously it's like a, there's a lot of layers to it. It is savvy to make a man uncomfortable. It's also a dig at Cole when he's like, why to have, why to have to be there? um yeah but i just like it's so funny because to think that agent gale is going to play the role that he's going to in this series of bailing them out so many times and i had it's just funny because it's such an antagonistic first meeting um oh yeah uh, although Cole's going to get him back. He's going to call him Shirley back in the next episode. <laughs> right. When he knocks him out and like breaks his nose. Um, that takes us to Mantis, who has quite the flair for the dramatic um, in paradoxing the wrong Tom Thomas Crawford. Um, and we get sort of our first clue that she has a connection to the pallid man because she's spreading the flowers around him right before she kills him. Um, There are, there's some really interesting, like in the ritual that she's reciting, there's some important clues just having to do with sort of the mythology around why they're doing all of this. Um, She says, rebirth, no beginning, no end, no death. It's only the passing of time that fools us. It kind of trails off there. I think she maybe revisits that at the end of the episode. And then she says, we shall meet again in the red forest. And it's really interesting because she... Didn't she say fools us into thinking we're not eternal? Yeah. Is that what the line is? Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful uh, line. Yeah. Yeah. And she also, the reverence that, the reverence of which she approaches murdering this man and the way she's like comforting him and touching his face and, and, because she thinks that, you know, this is basically a temporary state, his death, that that what she's doing will achieve eternal life, not only for him, but for everyone. Um, it kind of, you're either like, dude, she's really fucking crazy and or there's a lot more going on here that we don't know, which both can be true. <laughs> but, <laughs> because, you know, when she is like flirting with Crawford, Dr. Crawford, when he first mentions his son and then on a dime slams his head into the wall, you're like, wow, what the fuck are we dealing with here? Like, this is crazy. Um, you, one of you guys had thoughts just about the way the actress plays her and, and having to do with her name, I think last time, right? Oh yeah, it's just the, the way she uh, cranes her neck. Like she just takes on that physical characteristic of the uh, mantis from a predator standpoint. Right, like a like the insect praying mantis, which by mm-hmm. the way, doesn't the female always kill the male? Yes. <laughs> they yeah, mate she- with them and then they kill them. Yeah, which is pretty right on. I think that's what he thought was going down. Um, but 
<laughs> we just skip the going down, I guess. <laughs> um, she does do that like head crane thing where she's not, it, it, it is like not quite human. I totally see that. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting because especially in this episode, but as the show goes on, like her, there's a lot, there are a lot of layers to her. She's a really interesting character. Um, particularly because this is a character right now that, you know, when she got out of the car at the beginning of the episode and she's kind of overwhelmed by the gravity of the moment, like she, you know, Mm -hmm. she's like, what we're about to do is going to change the world. This is someone who was like raised from a, basically a test tube, right. Mm -hmm. That has been raised by a cult to believe that her only purpose in living is to do something in which she is going to die in that moment. So you would, you know, because when she survives paradoxing Tommy Crawford Jr., she's kind of at a loss as to like what to do with the rest of her life, right? Like she thought she, when she was going to, when she was paradoxing him in the office in this episode, she thought she was going to die. So I guess you can view like that ritual is as much for him and comfort for him as it is for her because, you know, she better hope that this is going yeah. to end up in an eternal red forest, right? I mean, that's all she's ever been raised to do and she thinks she's about to die. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of in- interesting that, you know, it's kind of a preview of Olivia's arc. And, you know, the pallid man, a lit, like, not quite like as fleshed out, but sort of like these people that were raised and like what Ethan's going to struggle with when you're raised to think you have like this one purpose and what kind of like faith do you have to have to follow through with that? You know, um, it's funny. It's funny because like religion is pretty, pretty much the only thing that could compel somebody to do something. <laughs> I just feel like religion is so key in getting people to do things that they wouldn't, if they sat down and really thought about it, they would realize it's not, it's probably not the best or most logical course of action. The other thing that's interesting is that she's up against the clock. So she's actively, they're actively trying to stop her from doing this thing. And she still takes the time to do the ritual. So it just kind of reinforces her faith because if someone were just doing something and using faith as a, as a, um, as a mask for it, they would just skip all the pleasantries and get down to the killing. But she realized, but for her, it's so much more than the, than the killing itself that she will risk Cole busting in that door and shooting her before she completes it because it's more important to complete it the right way. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and also because we'll see in the next episode, she imparts that faith to the pallid man. Mm-hmm. He, even though the, I mean, it hurts my brain because the pallid man was there when she was a baby. <laughs> but like, <laughs> no, but, uh, but we see, you know, we'll see that deathbed scene um, with the flowers. And she says at the end of the episode, like, you know, in season one, we were told that it was an old plague as in like, medieval times to mask the scent of death. But also she says at the end of this episode that flowers are the perfect like most beautiful cycle that you have the flower and then the seeds from the flower and then the flowers reborn. And it's kind of a cycle that goes around and around. Um, So it's also just, there's just a lot of really, you know, they just take the time to kind of build uh, the mythology so carefully, like with all of these details to even give us an explanation for the flowers. 
Um, I think that takes us, I think that takes us to the big casserole argument, um, which is one of my most favorite scenes in the entire series. And for me, it just, to me, sets this show apart from a lot of other sci-fi or kind of genre fantasy shows that I watch in that this scene, it's just two people in a room talking. There's nothing else going on. Like in some ways, it almost feels like a play um, where it's just two people, the words they're saying, you know, you feel like you're just sort of like peeking in on two people having a real argument. Um, And I feel like a lot of other shows that have plots as crazy as this one don't slow down and give us scenes like this where Mm -hmm. two characters are just hashing shit out and to no resolution, right? Like this is only one stop along the casserole angst train that is season two, right? Like they, they don't, they don't come out of it. They come out of this conversation, basically just agreeing to try and help Tommy Crawford jr. But they're not other than maybe understanding a little bit more where the other one's coming from. There's no resolution that comes out of this scene. It's just letting them argue. And I, I listened to um, the sci-fi network did a like post like they do for a lot of their shows, like post episode podcast and with the writers and some of the cast. And it was kind of different for each episode. But for this one, they said that they also let um, Amanda Shul and Aaron Stanford just kind of like let the argument keep going and improvise just to see kind of like where it would go. And I don't, I, I don't know what ended up being like in the actual episode and whatnot, but I think it's kind of fun. Like, I don't know if all of this is like exactly what was written or was improvised, but it just kind of let them like, let your two characters just like go at it. You know, didn't they say it went a little overboard? Like there was a couple things that were said that was like, Whoa, that's way too ugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it said Aaron deserved to die, <laughs> which I think. Yes, that's what it was. And they were like, oh, let's uh, let's maybe pull back on that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, it's so great. I mean, think about how fired up we get about characters. Imagine if we were playing oh them, right? <laughs> we're, we haven't so been thrilled. playing them for four years, you know? Um, so if we kind of break down, I mean, I think this scene is really important, not only for what is going on in their heads, but it also plants some seeds of the, I don't know if theme is the right word, but like dynamic between the two of them, that it's going to, it's going to go all the way to like the end of the series. Um, So you have just in terms of like what's going on in the right now. I love the kind of like everyday language of like, okay, what's your problem? Right? Like there's so many shows that I watch where I am begging for a character to just say that. What's your problem? And then have people fight. I know. Right? That's so cathartic. But, I mean, it's like what we're saying at the screen. So to like have a character say it out loud and then be like, oh man, they're fucking gonna get into it. Yes. Like I love a car crash scene like that. Um so cat, so if you just break down sort of like their two points of view. Cassie's is she can't trust him that finishing the mission isn't his strong suit because he can't do what needs to be done. That's sort of like her opening volley, right? And then Cole's retort is, this is kind of like a more um, 
uh, confrontational version of what they talked about at the end of the last episode. And he's like, you know, just going around killing everyone like that, that doesn't work. Like we've, we've already Mm -hmm. tried that. Right. It's kind of like, that's what season one was. And that, and that didn't work. So, but then it hits a wall because, or not a wall, what's the right word? It opens up in a different way because Cassie has a response for that now. And she's like, well, then what about Aaron? He died protecting me from you. Uh And that. Keeping in mind, she still doesn't know the truth about Aaron's death. Right, that Aaron was like setting coal on fire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, th- so Cole's face when she says that, and the way that then the line of you don't think I know what cost you, and then her reaction, which is that like, you know, like watching it, it's like, oh man, you know that moment in a fight where you said the thing that went too far, right? And now you feel bad. Um, it's just so beautifully acted and tells okay. you so much, right? She said that thing that she knows is like what he thinks in his head all the time. That she is the way that she is right now because of him, that she can't live in that world. Like he's gonna, right? He's gonna pick up this thread in lullaby and say, the reason why I do everything that I'm doing is to give you back a world to live in where you can be safe and happy. He's going to say that again in the series finale. I ruined your life when I got on that car, but now I can give that, I can give you a life back and you can go back to being a doctor. Like this goes at something that is so fundamental at like, it's, it's, it's like what they're constantly dancing around and trying to grapple with, right. That like they love each other. I mean, they're not saying that out loud now, but, but also he, like his entry into her life did ruin her life in some ways. Like, there's no way you can like putting aside the whole, he's a demon and he's causing all the larger problems, but just his entry, (laughs) his entry into her life was like, had catastrophic effects. Like that's not his fault. It's not like he meant to do that. But it's something they are constantly dancing around with because Cassie's also grappling with, yes, it was, but then I also made choices that are mine. And I am, you know, what she said, I am because of who, like, I am who I am. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you guys had thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in play. I think another thing that is not being said, but is was very clear to me the first time I watched it and 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 the second time I watched it was that the reason why they're having this conflict is because the coal that came to her was this like post-apocalyptic um, guy who was like, I'll kill anybody to in this torment, whatever. And so, but she, she, she's literally the person who showed him that there's more to it than that. Like his whole thing was, you're going to kill um, the dude. I forgot his name. Uh, what's his name when he, uh, Jennifer's dad. Oh, Leland Goins. Mm-hmm. We're going to kill yep. Leland Goins and this problem is going to be over. Zip, zap, zoom. And she's saying the whole time, you can't just go around killing people. And so he doesn't believe her. Um, and then he has to be convinced through, you know, a series of events and going through this whole, um, this whole ordeal. And so he's changed by that. And so then term going to the, to the future in 20, uh, 2044, um, she's changed by that. She learns the skills that he had to learn to survive. So because they're now 
it's like a complete reversal of what we saw when we first met these two characters. And I thought that like that's playing underneath this whole thing. And that's why that scene in particular feels so rich. It's like, it's rich on the level that you were talking about um, because they do have this uh, thing about um, him ruining her life and her wanting agency. But it's really about, it's almost the irony of the fact that you're the one who made him into this quote unquote person who can't, um, stay on the mission. But really, his mind is just broad, broadened. The mission isn't as simple as he first thought. Right. I mean, it's so funny. It's like, can you imagine if you were to watch back to back the two of them arguing over killing Leland Goins in the back seat of the cop car and the pilot? The scene in the night room where Cassie is telling Cole, like, well, I can't be like you. I just want to heal people. And then this scene. <laughs> you yeah. would have like, you know, it's crazy. Like they have swapped places. And just like during season one, you understood why Cole was the way he was and why Cassie is like us from our time saying you can't just run around doing things like that. <laughs> now you understand why they have flipped perspective, like flipped again. Um, and it's just, I mean, I mean, the other layer to this is this conversation is setting up the test that Cassie's going to face at the end of this episode, where she says, you can't do, the, you can't do what needs to be done. Well, when it comes to Cole, neither can Cassie. Yeah. Because when Mantis has the knife at his throat, um, she is not willing to take the shot, even when he tells her to take the shot. She's also not willing to take Tommy Crawford's life. Even after they know that the par like the paradox is afoot, right? Because he's mm -hmm. an innocent person. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's like how much of this is also resentment because now he's the one who's like saying, oh, we can save people. And so she's like, so now I have to be the hard guy, like the bad guy. I have to be the hardened one that takes a life. You know, she's, it's definitely something about herself that she was mourning in the last episode, right? Like mm -hmm. with not every caterpillar becomes a butterfly. So mm -hmm. you're right. It's just so rich, right? It's like one argument. There's so many layers to it. And it's something that's going to come back around in season three when Cassie's the more hopeful one and Cole thinks that killing Ethan is the answer. Um, it just goes like around and around and around. But um, the, the only difference I would say between the people recently that Cole's been saving and uh, Cassie not being able to take the shot at Tommy is that Cole is saving Ramsey and Jennifer who have a distinct link to the monkeys and to the plan. And for all we know, their link is not over. Like they are not innocent. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer didn't Jennifer. I think Jennifer, right. I mean, Jennifer stopped before she actually did something that was morally wrong. Right. No, totally. But, but from yeah. these perspective. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing, I mean, this argument is probably going to be playing in Cole's head when he decides to leave Cassie when she's in a coma and blood washed away, right? Like he finally can leave her somewhere safe and restore all of that back to her because, you know, the words Aaron was protecting me from you, those that's probably not, that's, it clearly has an impact on him. So it's just kind of interesting how I think there are repercussions of saying these things. It's it's not something that maybe he wasn't thinking about, but hearing her say it out loud has an impact. Um, 
But, you know, what it does bring it back around to and how they're able to move on is Cole makes the point that if when they work together, they can maybe get this done, which is a really good point, right? Like they figured this out together. They they wouldn't have gotten to like the whole mission. He set up everything. They wouldn't have been able to spot the messengers without Cassie. He wouldn't have he would have gotten in trouble with Agent Cole if Cassie hadn't come to the rescue. But if it weren't for Cole's conversation with Jennifer, he wouldn't have been able to figure out that Tommy Crawford Jr. was primary. So it is them working together and Cole, sh- I think, beginning to show some leadership, which I think is part of his journey that he's like, okay, let's put aside what's going on here and focus on the mission, which is ironically Mm -hmm. what Cassie's accusing him of not being able to do. Um, That brings us to our first primary other than Jennifer Goins, which is Tommy Crawford Jr. Um, Beep, you watched um, Continuum, right? Yes. And I love him. I love Alec. Every version of Alec and I wish that he had been able to be on this show longer. He's really great. He's really charismatic in this episode. So we're talking about Eric, is it Knudsen, um, who plays Tommy Crawford Jr. And I understand they have other plot elements in common, but we'll leave it vague. Um, he gives us some great, like, Beep, Beep always reminds us that, like, like the characters, the audience didn't know how to listen to the primaries. So now when we listen to Tommy as he's painting um, the demons on the wall, he's saying, Titan, everyone dies, which will be what Madeline Stowe tells Cole later on in season two. Green to red, mother becomes daughter. He's in room 313, which Beep is a prime number, right? Math teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he paints, you know, he's painting the demons. He paints the red for us. Um, I think it's, if Cole had his epiphany moment about that, there's a much larger plan at work here, or there's a lot more in play when he realized that Jennifer's, uh, gibberish is not gibberish, um, with 607, when Cassie walks in and sees the red forest on the ceiling and she is then revisiting in her head the Red Forest vision. I think that's when she, it's like her epiphany moment of like, how how could he possibly know that? And I think uh, it's just as an important moment for her as it is with in the last episode when Cole was with Jennifer. The crazy thing is, when they're running around, Ramsey is fucking there. So when they, when they leave that room, Ramsey is fucking chained to the radiator while all of this is going down, which is like crazy when you put these two episodes together. Um, you have a lot of to- both Tommy as the primary, who is representative of like the primaries that are working for time. And then Mantis, who's representative of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys working against time. But all of them know who James Cole and Cassandra really are. And so for them, both of them, it's like a celebrity sighting. Like, oh, my God, you're James Cole. (laughs) Um, And you have sort of the, I mean, you know, they're playing with us. Any idea how important you are? It's, I mean, I probably for Mantis, it's as because he's the father of the witness and seeing his name on the word of the witness. But, you know, obviously there's a much bigger meaning to that now. Um, And you have 
Cassie's kind of what the fuck moment when Tommy's like, Cassandra, Cassandra aids the traveler. Like, oh my God, why, why does this kid know who I am? Um, you know, we have the moment where Cassie can't shoot, even though Cole tells her to take the shot. And then we have a really interesting conversation between Tommy and Cassie when he thought it was really interesting that he calls Jennifer your friend when she's not, most certainly not Cassie's friend yet. And then he sort of explains the role of the time areas. I help time think. I keep the lines straight, the circles circling, the synapses. Um, like he describes primaries as the, almost like these synapses, like Im- like impulses connecting time. And so we start to get a bigger, we're starting to get a picture with what's going on in 2044 about why, why we're seeing the red storm and why it's such a big deal if they kill Tommy. Um, they're like time's neural network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of the other big moment to me, at least that gives me as Crystal would say, the tinglys is, um, (laughs) when Cole and Tommy are doing sort of their prisoner exchange walk and Tommy grabs Cole's arm and tells him, remember Jane's the only failures giving up, you know, Mm. Cole's face is like, how the fuck does he know what is what my dad used to say to me. Right. Um, but I, I, it's also, you know, now it connects Matthew Cole through Hannah to Elliot. Um, and maybe that's something that like all of the primaries know, right? Like it's crazy to think now that we know everything that we, when we know the whole story, when a primary saying something like that, they know big chunks of the story too, right? Like it may, they may not be able to see quote unquote, the puzzle from above, but who knows what vision he has in his head when he's saying that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's some interesting, like the imagery, we see that this paradox is red as opposed to the blue ones we've seen before. Red is not good. And <laughs> um, <laughs> we have Cassie and Cole being blown back and knocked unconscious, which is sort of an interesting foreshadowing of 212. And then we have Agent Gale walking in on like the biggest what the fuck scene ever. Like three, <laughs> there's been an explosion. Three people are unconscious. And, and one dude is dead with a bone in his chest with flowers all around. Like what the fuck? <laughs> so um, did you guys have anything else about Tommy Crawford and sort of our first um, kind of spending time with a primary other than Jennifer? I think Tommy is, he's more, um, he's more easy to understand and follow, um, partially, obviously, because we've seen, um, even on first run, he was more, he was more easy to follow because we've, we've seen a lot already, um, but he just seems more able to connect than Jennifer was when we first met her. I feel like Jennifer was having a harder time connecting with people and the sort and in time as a concept, but um, and she got better over time, and she got better, you know, as the the um, action went on. But Tommy instantly has a connection. She he can look in the eyes and like pull up the thing that connects to that person, even if it's off putting. Right. It also um his his acceptance that this is the day that he's going to die, as mm-hmm. if. You know, it reminds me of Chicken Jennifer later on in the season when she knows the day that she's going to die because she saw it on the word of the witness and accepts it and doesn't try to change it, which Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's just a really, I mean, in part, 
in part because I guess because they're primary, they understand that they can't mess with things like that um, because it's going to mess up the cycle. But it's also like this really, I don't know, like on the one hand, it's incredibly sad that you have this knowledge that you're going to die, particularly for someone as young as Tommy Crawford. And because of your role, you think or accept that you don't have the free will to change it when he clearly has opportunities in this episode to do so. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, with old Jennifer, it, it seems more of like a peaceful acceptance. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. having knowledge for so long that that's the day that you're going to die. It's like both a burden and there's also freedom with that. But it's just particularly, I mean, in some ways, Mantis and, and Tommy Crawford on this day, go into that room bound by sort of this acceptance that this, number one, this must happen. And number two, we both die here. Even though yeah. they are for an opposing sides of time. Um, it's just really interesting. And, and, and just makes me think about sort of like how old Jennifer is going to deal with sort of that same knowledge. It's also just for as important as primaries are, it's incredibly sad that this boy was having these visions at five years of age and is locked up in a mental institution just like Jennifer was, right? Like, yeah. And, and we will see Madeline Stowe as well, locked up. I mean, understandably more so because she murdered her entire family, but the like burden and mental torture. See details. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, we're going to see, and we'll see the uh, primary that's in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, who is much more, um, you know, is dangerous. And so, how this, how these visions and this burden manifest in different people, it's both like a really obviously their role is really really important, but it's also a really, you know, it's a burden, and it's kind yeah. of. Fast- you know, and it's kind of fascinating to watch how different people you've got, like on the one side, you've got Jennifer and Tommy and, you know, Ethan that are, they're burdened by it, but they don't, you know, you contrast that with Madeline Stowe and the guy in the seventies who kill people because they're tortured by the voices in their head. So either way, it's, it's just really sad, the burden that all these people carry. And thinking that it's even as young as like age five, or we, we'll see Jennifer's room in a few episodes of all of the drawings when she was a child. All right. So that takes us to, <laughs> we now know because this is our Groundhog Day episode, um, a little bit of a debate, or, or at least I'm going to go on a rant about <laughs> Deacon and Jones in 2044. Um the one nice part of this is we see Ramsey and Sam reunited for Ramsey. It's like the first time he's seen his son other than quickly in the last episode from the other side of the jail cell in like over 25 years. And his son is a little bit different to him because his son has grown up a, a little bit in like the eight months to a year's time since he's seen him. But for Ramsey, it's been 25 years, which must just be like such a mind fuck. Um, but they're sitting there and they're playing Go, which is the game that's referenced by the show a lot, but is the one that Ramsey taught Sam how to play and is the game that we will see them playing together in the epilogue um, in the series finale. 
So I love Jones and I love Deacon. They both really piss me off in this episode. So I understand that what I understand why you would be angry with what Ramsey did and want to punish him for what he did in aiding the army of the 12 monkeys, you know, in procuring the virus, et cetera. Although I think Jones maybe isn't fully realizing that Ramsey also completely financed that machine. <laughs> but he yeah. didn't do it. For- ah! Yeah. <laughs> he should have brought that up. <laughs> Dude, I own this place. <laughs> but, but I think this, the reason why Jones's willingness to go along with Ramsey's execution pisses me off. I think I can like distill it down to like three reasons. The first is I think it's strategically stupid. I don't understand why, you know, Deacon is a very pragmatic person. He like, he's the one who switched sides and went against the messengers. He's beginning to understand what's at stake. He, he's the one who put the gun in Whitley's hand, even though they had been enemies the episode before. He's a practical person. They have someone contained in a jail cell that spent 25 years with the enemy. And even though he thinks he doesn't know things, when they ask him big, broad questions, right? Like they're beating him up and they're like, what do, what do you know about the Army of 12 Monkeys? And Ramsey's like, they didn't let me in on things. But you just had an example in this episode that when you put something concrete in front of him, like that photograph with the name Crawford, he's able to remember details, which, you know, that that makes sense that you, somebody can't answer like a broad question, but as things come along, he could be helpful. So I think number one, it's like strategically stupid to execute someone when you've only had them in custody for like, what, two days, and they spent 25 (laughs) years with the enemy you're fighting. That's dumb. Number two, it all just comes down to killing someone for revenge. And I mean, I I don't even know why Deacon wants to kill Ramsey other than he's still pissed at him for questioning his authority, like back in Atari and now made Deacon feel like he lost control. But he also like found out that Ramsey saved his mother. So uh-huh. Deacon's motivation in particular seems petty. Jones states her motivation in that scene with Ramsey where they have like a very frank, like... You did it for your daughter. You did it for your son. Yes, but I'm aligned with 7 billion. You're not. You weren't. They kind of distill all of their past debates. And then it comes down to Jones saying, I've loved three people in my life. My father, my husband, and my daughter. All three of them were taken by the plague. And you helped do that. Now, the irony is Jones is wrong that her, her, both her <laughs> husband and her daughter were not killed by the plague. But she doesn't know that that Elliot is outbuilding Titan and that she just saw Hannah <laughs> when she <laughs> was brought at knife point to Jennifer in the last episode, but you're, you're killing. So you're killing somebody just for vengeance and for revenge, mm-hmm. which while I can understand, I'm like generally not a fan of, of executing somebody just for revenge. Um, and number three, the way they go about it. No, I have four reasons why I'm pissed. I forgot. Um, number three it just seems particularly cr- unnecessarily cruel the way that they go about it. So she lets him see his son without 
either of them realizing like one time in 25 years and neither of them realize it's going to be the last time that they see someone, that, that, that they see each other. And it just seems like for somebody like Jones, that's doing all of this for her daughter. She would have a little bit more compassion in that moment. And then they send him on this like fucking road trip with Deacon where he has to like drive out into the woods knowing he's about to be executed and then Deacon hands him a shovel and is like dig your own grave like it's all fucking horrible and so like if it was all meant to make the audience kind of realign our sympathy with Ramsey when we had been really pissed at him for most of season one well then like it worked because I was really pissed off at both Deacon and Jones and like the other thing that makes me really angry is Jones and Cole just had this like come to Jesus in the last episode talking about trust, talking about keeping things from one another. Jones asking Cole, is, are you with me? And Cole saying, I'm with you. And Cole trusting her and giving your information. And she's flat out basically like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm basically going to lie to Cole about what happened so that he thinks that I couldn't stop Deacon. When she clearly can, because the next episode, she's going to ask for Ramsey's help as soon as she thinks that he's abused her. So yeah. I, I, it just really like other than Project Spearhead, I have never been more pissed at Jones. I I just think this whole it just okay. I'll end my rant. <laughs> I um I, I'm I'm someone who um appreciates a little vengeance, so I'm not I'm not as upset. I think that it. I completely agree with you about the the utility just being wasted. Um. I think that she's she's a better um, tactician than that. So it seemed out of character to just kill him like that. But she is also like, you know, she is a, a, a I don't know. It's like she's she's tough. You know, she's a she's a rough one. And so in a way, it kind of feeds into that. But it still did seem a bit out of character for her to throw away an asset like that. Um, mm-hmm. With Deacon, I thought up to this point, I didn't really know Deacon. With Deacon, it was like, this is, it, it seemed perfectly in character for Deacon, particularly up to this point. My ho- The whole situation itself um, just felt, again, like we, we, we need the utility of this storyline. The storyline was to get these two characters out into the wilderness to see what time is doing and rip apart a red shirt um, so that they could both witness it and so that um, uh, Ramsey could save Deacon and get them back to like the, it was the utility of showing us what time imploding actually does to a body and for our main characters to see that happen. Um, and so even like, t- like he could have just shot him right there at the, you know, at the center. Like it really and as a matter of fact. Um, Jones saying, oh, I couldn't stop him makes more sense if it was like in a in a in a fit of peak. You know, they had a fight and he shot him. I, I couldn't stop him. I'm sorry. Like, that would make more sense than, oh, yeah, I couldn't stop him from taking him out into the woods and during. Like, that's weird. Like, that, I don't even know how Jones is going to explain that away. But right. it really was for the utility of the storyline of we need our main characters to see firsthand what is happening to time and to scare everybody into getting it together. And so... After when you know, I was just super aware of it the whole time I'm watching how unlikely this whole run of events was. So I guess that's why it didn't emotionally hit me as hard because it just seemed like such a utility um, storyline. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain justice if you think back to the season one finale that Ramsey and Deacon seem like our two big antagonists, right? Like Ramsey is mm-hmm. the one who's siding with the army of the 12 monkeys and, and buying the time, like investing in the time machine and is at the center of that big face off, right. With Cassie and Cole. And then you've got Deacon, who's the one le- like invading into Raritan and bringing the messengers in. So there's some, there's some poetic justice and that it's Ramsey and Deacon who have to be the first two to face like the red storms and, mm-hmm. and what they're bringing and out there. So like, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think beep, you go back to this scene a lot um, with sort of wondering why anybody would think the red force would be a good thing because we see it tear that guy apart. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm always stuck. <laughs> yeah. Um which I think, you know, Jones explains in the next episode that there are pockets of unstable time. So it's like aging somebody in a hundred, like, uh, you know, he basically had aged hundreds of years, like all at once. Um, but Beep, you had some counterpoints, right? About executing Ramsey. I did. Um, and I'm not saying that he should or should not be executed. It wasn't, it wasn't the uh, point to my thought process. But I, and I don't remember where it was said before. But I think that the whole character theme of season two is just feelings and emotions and people acting out of their emotions a lot more than they did in season one. Like season one was a lot more, um, you know, mission oriented and stop the plague. And season two, no matter how mission oriented people are saying they are, they're operating out of a place of emotions. And Mm -hmm. so for me, I didn't feel like, oh, this is just some petty revenge. Like Deacon has hated Ramsey, not only because he challenged his authority way back when, but because he sees Ramsey as what was the barrier between Cole becoming Deacon's, you know, replacement for his younger brother. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. So he feels like, you know, the one relationship that he could have had post you know his brother's death like Ramsey took that from him also I think there's a point to be made that even though you know on one hand you're kind of grateful like oh I'm I'm alive or my mother's alive because of of Ramsey he also hit on a soft spot and he doesn't want to be shown as vulnerable Mm -hmm. so it's like let's get rid of this guy and Jones (laughs) has mentioned over and over and over that Ramsey is actually Cole's emotional weak spot so I can see her wanting to remove him, not like in spite of Cole, but like for Cole. Because mm. if they're all going to be moving together forward, he could potentially just keep getting in the way, whether he's doing anything or not in the future to work against them. He's still, it, it's a line that Cole's not willing to cross. And so she's like, if we have to cross it for him, then fine. Yeah, no, I think those are good points. Like, I I think they go more toward, I, I think like listening to them, like I understand those points of view. They still come down to like, so you're going to kill someone? <laughs> like just generally not pro execution. Um, it's based the post apocalypse and they got to give him three squares a day. Ain't nobody got time for that. Oh no, my God. Exactly. It, they don't have, it's not even like nowadays where it's like, there's a there's you know this feeling of scarcity where there is none this is uh this is straight up scarcity like they really don't have it <laughs> like, you know. 
So I will say this, and I don't think this has been brought up. We don't often see the uh, the characters of the West Seven. Um, you know, they're they're more often referred to as to how many people uh, Deacon is taking care of and this and that. Ramsey could truly be a threat to his authority with these 200 other people that are standing around. I, I mean, I guess. I mean, but he's sitting in a jail cell. I mean, he they, he could not be more contained and they have his son for leverage. But that's which, not how they operate. But how is he a threat? He's a threat to lead the West 7? No, he's a threat to Deacon's leadership of the West 7. Just because he's in custody? You can't not- always say you know, let him live, create an enemy, and then decide we're going to let him live. That's real. It's funny because in the alternate, um, the alternate timeline, which, which isn't, it's better. It's not great. It's better than the one, the first, you know, apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the leader of the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, there might be that feeling of, you know, like it's not their, their actual timeline they're living through, but there might be that feeling of like, Maybe that timeline pressing on it, or maybe not something even that, you know, supernatural. It's just this, you know, he naturally has a in with other people. But one of the things about Ramsey, um, one of the things I liked about him from the beginning was he does have an empathy with him. He has a softness to him. I mean, he has, a, you know, the hardness and stuff. But he also has a softness to him that I, I really was drawn to in the beginning um, before he went to live with, um, with the 12 monkeys. But... Um, you know, people, I could see the people in the West seven liking him and like, you know, that becoming a fissure, um, going down the line. Yeah. I mean, and in this episode, we again, see the kind of man Ramsey is in that you've got the red storm approaching and the man who just was making him dig his own grave and had a gun to his head. He saves Deacon. I mean, that ends up being a major point to allow Jones to make the deal with Ramsey in the next episode. If you, if you save Cole, I'll give you your freedom and you and your son can walk out of here is because he spared Deacon. So, you know, he is not, everybody would have done that in that situation, right? You would have just hightailed it out of there and either shot Deacon or let the storm take him. Right. Because this guy was about to execute you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. But like on what day of the week have these two motherfuckers not tried to execute each other? I mean, I feel like it's just their day. I'm sorry, but if you go back to Atari, Ramsey wasn't trying to execute Deacon. He just thought Deacon was an amoral asshole and want and, and didn't want a part of it. He never wanted a part of it. So I would never like look, I get it when Deacon is like, you helped, you helped the army of the 12 monkeys spread like a a world ending plague. You and I are not that different. I get that point. But when they were in the same world and, and dealing in the West seven, Ramsey was never trying to like kill Deacon and take over the West seven. He just didn't Uh agree with like shooting people after you've robbed them, which is also a line. That's also a line I would probably draw. (laughs) Deacon's been hunting him for like 10 years. Like, of course he wants to kill him. Because he's like a vengeful dick. That I mean, why? <laughs> because he took Cole. Ah, uh, I mean, I get, I get that, right? There's even that like deleted scene in, in season four where he's like, "We were never going to be brothers." I totally get that, like pathos. I'm just saying that's not a good enough reason to want to execute. But you're but, just against executing someone in general, so I feel I, like I, you I, could not I, be swayed. 
I wouldn't last a day in the rest of it. I like how um, Beef and I are kind of, uh, we're, we're changeable on the whole execution thing. You're like taking a hard line. <laughs> I mean, it's fiction. Some people got to get executed. It's oh my God. <laughs> well, also, it's, I mean, it's just going to go, we're going to go back around to the original point. It's strategically stupid. You've got someone who's got 25 years worth of knowledge on your enemy in a jail cell. Why the fuck would you execute them when you've only been questioning them for like two or three days? And on that day, you got an unexpected, useful nugget of information from them that confirmed the mission that you're currently on. It's stupid. So like, let's put aside the morality of executing people. It's just strategically stupid. Because season two is about making decisions based on emotions. (laughs) But conversely, conversely, Ramsey um, saving uh, uh, Deacon at the last minute is strategically Good, because he would never see his son again if he just showed up by himself talking mm-hmm. about, oh, my God, the storm ate him. Like, I don't think they would have listened to that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it probably is like, you know, both of them. I mean, I love that it this, you know, this episode and this goes to like Beep's broader point about the season. But this episode and then everything that leads up to the scene at the end of 204 where Cole is like. We got to bury the past if we're going to save the future. These two episodes are about all different pairs and groupings of characters dealing with that, right? So like Deacon and and Jones wanting to kill Ramsey is all about the past. It's not what he can do for them in the future. And they're being short-sighted about the future because they're caught up in their feelings about the past. And so if that's sort of like a broader arc, like theme of these two episodes and like, I get why that goes with all of it. It just, I just was pissed off at them. <laughs> like watching it. Um, do you guys have anything else about 2044? Nope. How about you? No, no. Execute Ramsey 2040. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't feel that strongly about it one way or another. Now I'm just picking at you. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I love the debate. <laughs> um, okay, so that brings us to a new segment that, that Beep is like, honey, we got to put this at the end. We got to put this at the end of the podcast, which it totally makes sense. But it's Easter eggs and rabbit holes. Um, and this is this is what we're going to call this segment. It's also Beep's like subtitle is, where the fuck does Tina come up with this stuff? <laughs> so you just scare me a little is all. <laughs> Dude, all it is is watching this on Amazon Prime and having like access to Google. <laughs> That's all that it is. Yeah, but um, you gotta go from one to the other, and then it's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some fun, um, either music or literary allusions or real historical facts that I think are just kind of fun, quick rabbit holes to run through. Um, the first is. Columbia University actually was a naval training center during World War II. It also was a center for some of the like top secret research that was going on for the Manhattan Project. Um, so researching the atomic bomb. And so there were like 700 people working at Columbia University during the time of this episode. And so there are some like 
a lot of real world reasons why you would have had a military gala that was highly secure with Agent Gale and FBI agents there worried about access spies. And all of that is sort of like the historical backdrop to this episode, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, there also was a real, when they're in the situation room and um, Eklund and different people are talking about Dr. Crawford's research and they said they um, cited that he was a member of the War Bureau of Consultants. That was a real thing. And it was a group of scientists who were engaged by the U.S. government to explore basically our first biological weapons program. So that was a real thing, which like bringing it back to governments doing shitty things 100 shitty years apart. Shit, yo. Yeah, it's also within the world of the show. I mean, there's a version of this virus that Markridge creates at the behest of the CIA in season one. So it's both historically accurate and also kind of bringing full circle, like uh, sort of the government's role, even within the show with the play. Um the song that is playing when Cassie and Cole walk into the military ball. So I live on Capitol Hill where the Marine Corps band practices. And so often in my house, I can hear the Marine Corps band <laughs> practicing for like military parades. And they're always playing John Philip Sousa, who wrote a lot of the like, um, uh, like Stars and Stripes Forever. He wrote the Liberty Bell March, which is what we hear when Cassie and Cole walk into the military gala. And you hear it at like every presidential inauguration. It's like super familiar. It is also the theme song for Monty Python's Flying Circus. And the person who picked that theme song is Terry Gilliam, who is the director of the original 12 Monkeys film. So either... That's like a huge coincidence, or that is like a little Easter egg shout out to the director of the original film. Um, Can I please just tell you, I thought you had said that because you live in the city, you heard that music in your head all the time instead (laughs) of at your house. And I was like, we maybe need to talk after this. <laughs> no, what I think a lot of people don't know is the Marine Corps barracks. There's Marine Corps barracks in the middle of a na- of the neighborhood in Capitol Hill. So it's the oldest, like it's the original base for the Marine Corps from like 1802. And that's where the Marine Corps band practices. So if you live at Capitol Hill, you hear revelry at night, you hear the Marine Corps band practicing, and they're always playing John Philip Sousa. When they walked in to that music, it just stuck out at me because I hear it like every week. <laughs> so the next fun little musical Easter egg is, you know, when Cassie and Cole walk into the mental institution and there's that kind of like old fashioned 1940s music that's playing when they see that the nurse is most likely dead behind the front desk. And it sounds like it's kind of underwater a little bit. So. I stopped to look because you know how Amazon Prime says the music. So yeah. if that sounds that kind of like um, it sounds like an old 1930s or 1940s tune, but it kind of sounds like it's underwater a little bit. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is the same music, um, basically like side project called The Caretaker that did the don't follow the creepy music that we hear at Titan. And blood washed away. And then we hear it again in season three when Cole's in France and he almost gets to baby Cole before they splinter away with him. Do you know the song I'm talking about? 
No. It's like literally, it's the one when they get to Titan and the, and that creepy music. Yeah, is playing. I, know it, I know he says oh, that, but yeah. I don't remember what it is. So it sounds like basically like ballroom music underwater a little bit. And and the name of this song is called, the, in this episode, is called Libet's Delay. And the song in Blood Washed Away is All You Are Going to Want to Do is Get Back There, which that is a hell of a title of a song for Titan. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about how season two ends, right? So two kind of interesting things, not only about the title of that song, but also the music project, The Caretaker, is by this musician, James Kirby. And both of these, I think both of these songs are on an album called An Empty Bliss Beyond the World. And what he did was take, he found old, like pre-World War II vinyl ballroom jazz records. And then he used sort of like an editing process to explore, like he had read about a project of people with Alzheimer's disease being able to remember, even if they couldn't remember like their spouses, like who their spouse is. One of the last things to go is remembering music. And so it was a study that explored memory and how how the music would make them feel, even if their memory in general was like severely compromised by Alzheimer's. So he's taking a song from the past and by like the electronic process of the music, like what would it sound like if it was being distorted like through someone's mind with like time and memory and their feelings and I think that's like really interesting considering sort of like all the themes of the show with time and memory and how messing with time messes with memory and kind of like the idea of like a memory of tomorrow or when time when time shifts and people can't remember things um but also the name of the song, Libet's Delay, refers to this research in the 1980s by Benjamin Libet that explored, if somebody touches your finger and you move your finger, what is the time that it takes for the, the feeling to register in your brain between the time that your skin was actually touched? So the delay is like how many mill- hundredth of a millisecond does it take between being touched and having the consciousness, having it register in your consciousness that you're touched. And what people concluded from his study, and I think that's, it's debatable, but if you react to something, if you, if your mind is already sending a response to physically do something before your consciousness has even registered that it's happened, then how do we have any free will at all? Does that make sense? Hmm, that's interesting. It's a bit of a jump maybe, but okay. Yeah. So <laughs> this, you know, and it's funny because I remember this coming up, this comes like people point to this and talk about how, whether or not we really have free will or whether we have like, if our consciousness is anything other than electrical impulses, a lot in the context of different sci-fi shows. Right. So, right. Like, For example, like on The 100, where you were talking about the city of light and existing only in not a corporal form, but in a consciousness form, or on on 12 Monkeys, like the Red Forest, giving up your corporal form and just your consciousness. But also just how with how this show, even in this episode with Tommy Crawford, is playing with these ideas of free will and loops of time. And do we even have free will? Like, it's just there's a lot to unpack and it could just be like little fun things that they're dropping in there. But I just thought it was really um, 
both the levels of like both the what that music project was exploring with time and memory, but even the name of that song and how that Libet's delay is something that people always cite to as evidence of like, we really are just a, a, a jumble of electrical impulses and there is no such thing as free will. Our brains are already telling our bodies to do something before we're even conscious of it. Um, there is actually, it kind of reminds me of Bandersnatch, um, the Black Mirror episode, the Choose Your Own Adventure Black Mirror episode. Um, the 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 um, the argument being that we live in parallel universes at the same time. So whatever you do in one universe, it really doesn't matter because there's so many other universes that you exist in. Um, so free will is a is an illusion. <laughs> so it's interesting how different sci-fi properties, you know, get to that same um, ideology different um you know explanations yeah well and they're all they're all digging into it from different angles but part of it is also reaction to advances in scientific knowledge like this study by benjamin libet or advances in technology with artificial intelligence um but yeah they're all kind of it's they're all like in that same sandbox playing around and i just thought it was fascinating that like that song is playing while Cassie and Cole are living through a day where there's a series of things, including Ramsey, that are all happening, that are out of their control, that are preventing them from doing the thing that they're trying to do when they've traveled to the past to do it. You've got Tommy Crawford knowing he's going to die and having technically having a choice to change that, but believing that he doesn't have the free will to do so. There's just a lot of layers there. And I thought it was kind of a really fun rabbit hole, both the title of the song, but also how the, um, you know, this is a music project. This album is something that the show returns to again in episodes that are like, you know, blood washed away and memory of tomorrow that are playing around with memory and time. So I just thought it was like kind of fun background to the, to these songs that the show is using. Okay. So the final one, this is the one that I was like the most excited about. So I left it for last. Um, so when Cassie first splinters to 1944 New York City and she's knocked out on the ground and she stands up in front of a theater and we can kind of see a marquee, uh, it caught my eye. It says the marquee, if you pause it and look closely, as some people do, um, it says uh, Connecticut, uh, Connecticut Yankee. And then it says something about a medieval musical. So that just caught my eye because I grew up in, first of all, I just saw Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. So just the word caught my eye. But if you grew up in Connecticut, you spend, at least in the 80s, a lot of time studying Mark Twain because Mark Twain lived in um, Hartford. He also lived in my hometown. And he wrote A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And that is considered one of the first literary works about time travel. And it was written in 1889. I think there's like some debate. H.G. Uh, Wells's novels might be earlier. But it is about a man whose name is Hank Morgan. He lives in Hartford, Connecticut. He works at a gun factory. He gets hit on the head. And when he wakes up, he finds himself hundreds of years in the past in the middle of King Arthur's court. Um, there's a couple fun parallels. The first is... I wondered if it was a reference the fact that Cassie is flat on the ground it looks like she's like rega- like coming to regaining consciousness and then the man who goes to help her to tell her about the air raid asks if she was just hit on the head made me think if that was kind of like a fun shout out to the book 
Um, the second is when Hank Morgan first shows up at King Arthur's court, he gets into big trouble because he's wearing 19th century clothes and not um, appropriate attire for uh, King Arthur's court, like back in the age of Camelot. And he ends up being almost burned at the stake for it. So I also thought it was kind of fun that Cassie like gets into trouble walking through the lobby of the Emerson Hotel um, because she's not dressed in the right way. And also like, like our characters in 12 Monkeys that are kind of stuck in a loop and can't seem to shift things and change sort of the fate of the plague, Hank in um, A Kinetic Yankee in King Arthur's Court, no matter, despite all of the technological advances that he's able to bring because of his knowledge from the future, he is not able to prevent King Arthur's death and the end of Camelot. And so it's just kind of another you know, a time travel novel exploring, like there are some things you can change on the margin, but like ultimately you can't change quote unquote fate. Um, so it's just kind of fun. Um, you know, that's definitely like an Easter egg that was in there. The really fun historical fact is there was, there is a musical, a Connecticut Yankee, which is an adaptation of Mark Twain's novel that first debuted on Broadway in the twenties. There was a revival playing on Broadway in New York from 1943 to 1944. And the theater it was playing at was located at West 45th Street. And Cole said at the beginning of the episode that the Emerson Hotel is located just two blocks away at West 43rd. So it's just like, how good is the writing staff of this show that they buried like an Easter egg within an Easter egg? Like it's referencing one of the first literary works of time travel, but through a musical revival that actually was going on when their episode is set. I just thought it was really, really cool. Um, and the poster says that Ted Miller is starring in this production. And um, if you look on IMDb, he is a line producer on the show. So it looks like it was also a shout out to somebody who worked behind the scenes on the show. Have either of you guys read that book? No. Nope. But it's, it's, yeah. it's fascinating and um, pretty impressive that they were able to kind of do that level of research. Yeah, maybe it's only kids in Connecticut that still read this book. Because we're really freaking excited <laughs> that there's a book with like Connecticut in the title. But just a shout out to like my ninth grade uh, English teacher, Miss Roland, because I remembered it. And when I saw it on screen, I got really excited. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dork. Um, did you guys have anything else? Any other fun things like Easter eggs you caught or things you want to talk about? I don't think so. Not really. No. It was just a great episode and I enjoyed it. And it goes right into the next one. So it's perfect. It's perfect uh, binging bait because it goes right into the next one. Yeah. yeah and it's neat to see that one from like a different perspective when you're watching it from Ramsey and Jones and like their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's really and I, was, I was literally about to say something that's in the next episode. Their argument is just so good. Oh, it's so good. It's so delicious. And it should feel like sweet, sweet vindication to you. Um, <laughs> because yes, <laughs> you know everything that went down this this episode. Yes, it's very cathartic for me and my. <laughs> Although I got to do that rant twice, <laughs> so I feel really. <laughs> Crystal, thank you so much for coming. And now, basically, you talked about episode two hundred three for five hours because you did this all again. <laughs> So thank you for doing this Groundhog Day episode with us. Um, we hope you will come back. 
Um, our next episode will be um, discussing 204 Emergence. Um, Aaron Rebloggenhood will be back to talk about Randy. Yes, very, 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 very short tie. Um, HG Well. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I freaking God. love that tie so much. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a clown. I want Dr. Funko Stein to do a pop of 1940s Ramsey because I love that short tie so much. It's so funny. Um, and then the Pallid Man will be back and Jones is going to go tripping on some red tea. So we're looking forward to talking <laughs> about that. Um, if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon. <laughs>